Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, God, as I look around at the faces who are here and the people who are here, I know that you have people here that you have brought specifically to be here today. And I pray, God, that you would touch each one who is here. And I know that you have something to speak to all of us this morning. I pray, God, that we would hear what it is that you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series titled Level Up, and we're talking about leveling up in some different ways, mainly leveling up spiritually, but we have this theme of level up. It's sort of video game theme that you saw there. When I was in high school, I played a little bit of video games, but I was actually a lot more into tennis than I was into video games. And there was a level up sort of comparison there with me and tennis. And so uh, twice a week, I would go to Harpers Point Racquet Club in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it was for this, it was a thing called Program of Excellence. It was for competitive tennis players, of which I was one. And so there were about 25 or 30 kids that would show up every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. And so they would take us and they would put us on five courts. The best kids were on the first court, court number one. The worst kids were on court number five. I usually ended up on court three. Occasionally I got up to court number two. But I always wanted to be on court number one because that's where the best tennis players were. And to this day, that was 30 plus years ago, I still remember who was on the top court. It was Steve McCullough, it was Anthony Yates, it was Brent Rollins, it was John Cronenberger. Like those guys were, I still like kind of idolized those guys, even though it was all those years ago. And I wanted to move up. I had this desire, like I, I want to get on court one, I want to get on court one. And occasionally I did, but not very often. But I realized something, that it, desire alone was not enough for me to level up and get to court number one. That there were things about my tennis game that needed to change to get me to court one in terms of strengthening my serve, in terms of consistency of my backhand, some other things. I needed to improve the skills that I had to get to the top court, to the level one court, at the top court. Now, it's interesting how things sort of go full circle. So as a 15, 16-year-old kid, I'm like, I want to be on court one. I want to be on the best court, right? So February last year, I started to do this thing called Learn to Play Hockey for Adults. My middle school son, Ben, and I began to go on Friday nights to the South Charleston ice rink. And so the first 10 minutes, you skate around, you warm up and stuff. They give you a helmet and pads and sticks and the whole thing. It's pretty awesome. And then you warm up, and then you go in the middle, and then the instructors of this Learn to Play Hockey say, Okay, you go to the good end. You go to the good end. You know, and they put the better players over there that can skate and handle the puck. And then they put the rest of us in what they affectionately call the special group. So I was in the special group. And I so much, I, I want to be in the big end. I want to play with the big boys over there, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. And so every week I show up, I'm like, I'm going to try my hardest. And maybe one day, one day they'll say, Matt, you go to that end. And uh, one day I actually went to that end because I snuck there, not because I was put in that group. But you see, I want to get out of the special group into this better group, but desire alone isn't going to get me there. There are some things that I need to learn to improve at, and the desire is important, but I've got to get better at learning to skate backwards. I've got to learn to get better at changing directions from skating forward to skating backwards. I need to get better at my puck handling. There are things I need to get better. Desire alone is not enough. Now, this series, Level Up, we are in 2 Timothy. And if you want to turn there, you can find 2 Timothy. We're going to be in there this whole five-week series. But what we're talking about, and we looked at this last week, is that the theme of this 
book, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, is about the desire that Paul has for Timothy and that Timothy has for himself. The desire is this. Paul, at the end of his life, says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And that's what he wanted for Timothy at the end of Timothy's life. And that's what we want for ourselves. As we look forward to the end of our life, we want to be able to look back and say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now, this morning we have middle school students in here, and that's a little bit by design because of this passage that we're talking about. Because middle schoolers, if you're in here and you're in middle school, you have longer to live to the end of your life than your parents or the people sitting here. That you have more time to put in to this amazing goal of being able to get to the end of your life and say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. But the thing is, if you're in middle school, The people around you, your friends, this is not what they're living for. They're living to get to the next level of Fortnite. They're living to get to, you know, to make the team. They're living to get friends or to be popular, to be liked. And I want to encourage you, if you're in middle school, to pursue other things, to say, I want to be at the end of my life and to have God say, well done, good and faithful servant, where you at the end of your life can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so that's what Paul is imparting to Timothy here in this letter. And there's a whole lot that goes into this. There's part of it is in giving him instructions about this is how you live your life. This is the character that you're to have. This is how you pursue God. He talks to him about doctrine. Here's doctrinal things that are important, theological things that are important. Here's how you lead the church. Here's some problems that you're going to encounter in the church and in the world. And here's how you steer around them. And here's how you push through them. He talks about all of that in this book, as he's passing on leadership of the church from Paul to Timothy. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, you're considering, do I want to become a Christian? Do I want to live this way? You know, I love this book for you because it's a picture of what does it mean to be all in? Because if you ever decide to step across that line of faith and say, yes, I want to become a Christian, I want to give my life to Christ, My hope and prayer is that you'll be absolutely all in, and this is a picture of what it means to be all in in a relationship with Christ. So we're talking about leveling up spiritually, and my hope, again, is that you have a desire to level up spiritually. But I want to say this as we get into the passage today, is that the desire to level up spiritually is not enough. In other words, I had a desire to level up in my tennis. I have a desire to level up in my hockey, but that's not enough. There's some skills that I need to learn to get better at those things. And the same is true for you. If you're here saying, I want to level up spiritually, there are some things that you need to learn and grow in, and as you do that, that will help you to level up spiritually. And so over the course of this series, we're looking at what are these different things that need to happen in our lives so that overall we can level up spiritually. So last week, one of the things we talked about is owning our faith. We talked about how God gives us some things, but there's a responsibility on us to own our faith. Last week, we also talked about we need to level up in using our spiritual gifts. We need to use the gifts that God has given us to minister in God's kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to talk about 
a third thing that we want to level up in specifically. Before I do that, I want to consider Paul and Timothy. So Paul wrote this book in about probably 63, maybe 64 AD. He died in what was believed to be 19, or 19, it would be 65 AD. That was 1953 years ago. And when he died, there were thousands of Christians on the earth. Maybe there was certainly more than 3,000, maybe more than 4,000. Maybe there was 5,000 or 10,000, or maybe there was 25 or 50,000. But Christianity was counted based on thousands back when Paul lived. The gospel also, in terms of where Christians lived, it started in Jerusalem. And then most, not all, but most of the Christians at that time lived within about 300 miles of Jerusalem. 1953 years ago, that's what Christianity looked like. But if we look at Christianity today, Christianity isn't counted by thousands or even millions. It's counted by billions. That The best estimate is there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. And that now Christianity is everywhere. It's not just centered geographically around Jerusalem. It's in Africa and South America and North America. In every corner of the world, we find Christians. So the question is, how does that happen? How does the gospel go from this relatively small people group of a few thousand people, geographically centered, to the entire world where we count Christians in billions? I'm going to show you how this happens, and I want to draw a picture. And so at the bottom of your outline, if you want to grab that, the outline you got when you walked in, at the bottom we left a little bit of space. And I want you to draw what I'm drawing up here, and then we're going to Fill this in a little bit now and then a little bit at the end of the service. But I want you to draw four circles with arrows between them, okay? So we're going to draw a circle here, then an arrow, and a second circle. That looks a lot more like an oval, but that's okay. Okay? Another circle, arrow, four circles. Everybody got that? Okay. Now, I want you to draw it a second time, okay? We draw one over here. The exact same diagram, and you'll see why towards the end of the service, but got that. My drawing is pathetic, but it's okay. It's because I'm getting high from the Sharpie marker up here. That's why it's that's the reason. Ooh, okay, so here's what I want us to see. I'm going to read you a passage. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It starts out and it says, this, again, this is Paul writing to Timothy, who is imparting and trusting and investing faith, and he says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So this is God's provision. We talked about this last week, that God provides things for us. God provides grace that strengthens Timothy. And it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Now, in this one verse, we have four generations of Christians, okay? So in this top circle here, we have Paul, okay? Paul is writing the book of 2 Timothy, or there's a letter of 2 Timothy. He's empowering, he's impassing, he's entrusting, investing in Timothy, okay? Timothy is next. And then Timothy is to take what he's learned from Paul and take that to faithful men, okay? Take that to faithful men and women, so we put faithful there, and then from there, it says, who will entrust it, who will give it to others. So we don't really know who that is, so we'll just put others in that circle. This is God's plan 
for taking the gospel to the whole world, that Paul invests his life in Timothy, Timothy invests his life in faithful men or reliable men, these faithful, reliable men entrust the gospel to others. That's how Christianity spread from a small number of people geographically centered to the world to billions. But Paul didn't come up with this on his own. It came actually from Jesus. That this is exactly what Jesus did, is that Jesus invested his life in the 12 disciples, and more specifically in the three, in Peter, James, and John. He gave his life to them. He poured into them, and then they poured into others, and as did Paul, and the world was changed because of it. Now, we'll come back to this in just a second. So here's what I want us to understand. We're going to talk about this the rest of this morning as this weaves through the passage. If we want to level up spiritually, what we need to learn and grow in is we need to level up in our investment in other people. We need to level up my investment in others. And what's going to follow in these verses, in this passage, is there's about five verses we're going to look at. And Paul is going to talk to Timothy. He's going to write to Timothy about three different characters going to talk about a soldier, he's going to talk about an athlete, and he's going to talk about a farmer. And there's a couple of different things that we learn from each of these different characters. And what we want to, what we want to do is we want to look at this and we say, this is what Paul is entrusting, imparting, teaching Timothy. And so that's what Paul or God wants to teach us but these are also the same things that we want to impart to the people that God is directing us to invest our lives in. And so as you think about this, as we walk through these images of an athlete, of a farmer, and a soldier, and what it means to invest your life in other people, I want you to think about this question. Who is it that God wants you to invest your life in? Who does God want you to make an impact on in life? You know, if you have kids... Absolutely, you want to keep your kids in mind as we think through this stuff. If you are one of the heroes of Riverwood Church and you are a small group leader in any capacity, I want you to think about the people in your small group, whether you lead a ridge group of adults or a women's group or a middle school or high school group or a pre group of preschoolers. I want you to think about these, those people as we think about what does it mean to invest your life in others. If you're in school, Think about what would it look like to invest in a younger person at school, to really care about somebody who is younger than you. You know, if you're in the working world, what would it look like to invest your life to try and add value to somebody else's life that you work with, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, but to invest and care instead of about yourself, to care about them. Keep that in mind as we walk through this. So we begin in verse 3, the soldier Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs since his aim is to please the one who had enlisted him. Okay, your version may say to please his commanding officer. Different, different translators put it different ways. But it's this idea of the person who enlisted you, for us that's Jesus, is our commanding officer. And so he says, don't be entangled in civilian affairs since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So here's the question, and I just said it, but you probably know the answer, is who is your commanding officer? We know, okay, the answer is Jesus. I'm in church. That must be the answer. The answer is Jesus. And good job. You got the right answer. 
But I want you to think a little bit deeper than that, okay? Instead of just going, yep, Jesus is my commanding officer, and, and on we go. I want you to think about this. Who are the other commanding officers that you have a tendency to listen to besides God? Who are the voices or what are the things that you are pursuing about decisions in life that are other than who Jesus is? You know, as I think about my own life, one of the commanding officers, one of the officers that I sometimes try and please is people. That I listen to the voices of people around me and I think, well, what's going to make people happiest? What's going to make people most whatever it is? Or if I make this decision... How can I get the least number of people mad at me? But you know what this says? is It says, please, your commanding officer. It helps for me to have that in view. You know, the other thing sometimes I do is I think in terms of what's going to be easiest for me? With this decision ahead of me, what's going to make it easiest for me, the least discomfort in making decisions that way? Again, not the framework. What about for you? Who are the commanding officers that you're likely to please? Is it shame? Is it your boss? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Maybe it's your friends. Or maybe it's the pursuit of money or the pursuit of success or the pursuit of significance. And that's what is loudest in your head of what you're trying to please as you make decisions in your life. I was listening to a podcast this week and the guy said, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm sure he found it somewhere, but he said that the average person makes 35,000 decisions a day. That's a lot of decisions. Now, obviously, 35,000 decisions are not you know, all equal decisions, but as you think about the bigger decisions in your life, who's the commanding officer that is influencing the decisions that you're making? Do you say, my aim, like a good soldier, is to please my commanding officer, to please God? Or is your decision something else that's maybe pleasing yourself or pleasing a person or pleasing a goal that you have placed for yourself? So the lesson is this, is we want to imitate the focus of a soldier. Imitate the focus of a soldier. The beginning of the verse, I want you to underline something. It says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. I want you to underline that word entangled. Underline the word entangled. And here's the thing about entangled is when we entangle in something, there's not usually intention there. I was thinking about this this week. Like, what is it that gets tangled up most in my life? And it's a physical object. It's my headphones, right? The headphones that plug into my phone, I'll use them in the car, and then sometimes I'll use them inside or when I'm exercising. And so I'll, I'll jam them in my pocket, and every time I pull them out, they get all tangled up, and I have to take the time to untangle them and so forth. But I've never said, I want to see if I can get my, phone, my headphones tangled up, right? We don't intentionally try and tangle something in our lives, but yet, when we talk about, it says a soldier doesn't become entangled in civilian affairs, it's not by intention, it's by lack of forethought. And then what happens is we, as people, as followers of Christ, get entangled in things that don't have anything to do with the things that God wants us pursuing. I want to show you a picture of a modern-day hero. This is John Kaiser in the middle there. And John is a part of River Ridge Church. And he's been serving for the last 10 months 
in Afghanistan. He's part of the military police in Afghanistan with the U.S. Army. And he's been there for 10 months. He's in Kuwait now. In a couple weeks, he'll come home to, te- he'll come to Texas and then back to West Virginia and be with us here um, in Charleston at River Ridge. But as I think about him, his life is hyper-focused right now on all the things that he needs to do to be a soldier. Right? That's what his life is about, of making sure the compound is safe, making sure the battle is won. All the things that he does, it is singularly focused on that. He's not thinking about anything else because his goal is to do his assignment, what his commanding officer says to do in Afghanistan. As we think about ourselves, as you think about you, what is it that is our battle? You know, it's not Afghanistan. What's our battle? And we are in a battle for eternity. We are in a battle over the souls of men and women that every person here on earth is going to spend eternity somewhere and that the battle is ours to fight, that God calls us in to fight, to help people become Christians, to help people grow in their walk with Christ. The battle is that we would have our focus on things that are eternal and not things that are earthly. And so what we do is we want to, as much as we possibly can, center our lives around that which has eternal value and not just earthly value. So as we do that, just being real and have a conversation, what does that mean for us practically? Because I think we can kind of picture, like if you're in full-time ministry, I can kind of picture what that looks like. Does that mean that everybody needs to go into full-time ministry to live out this verse? No, absolutely not. You know, does, does living out this verse mean that you, know, you can't play hockey on Friday nights anymore? No. Does it mean you're not allowed to have any hobbies? Does it mean you can't watch Netflix anymore? You can only watch right now media? Does it mean when you're on Facebook, you can only follow Christian comedians and artists and whatnot? Does it mean the only book you're allowed to read is the Bible? No, it doesn't mean any of that. What it means is we examine our lives and we look at everything that we do and we say, how does this help me towards investing my life in others? How does this help me to fight the battle that God has called me and all of us into? You know, I'll give you one example, and you can take this example and apply it to a bunch of different places. But everything in our life is either a tool or it's an entanglement. Everything in our life is either a tool towards helping people and towards eternity and heavenly-minded things, or it's an entanglement that keeps us from focusing there. You take work, for example. You know, most of you work 40, 50, 60 hours a week, maybe more, maybe less. Maybe you work at home taking care of your kids. Maybe you work outside the home. But you work at that, and you say, well, does that mean, how do I use that as a tool instead of an entanglement? And the thing is that the same thing can be a tool or an entanglement. It's just how we approach it. It's how we look at it. You know, when you go to the office, when you go to work, wherever you work, how do you view that? Do you view that as an opportunity for the gospel? To love people there well? To invest in a pour into your direct reports? Do you honor your boss in the way that you interact with him? Do you honor your boss when you talk to other people about your boss? You know, in Colossians, it says, whatever you work at, work out with all your heart as working for the Lord. Do you take that sort of attitude into your work? If you do, 
then it's a tool for the gospel. But if you don't, if it's just a place you go, then it's something that entangles. And you say, the answer is not quit your job. The answer is, how can I utilize this to advance the gospel? And you could take that same thought about a tool or an entanglement and apply it to every single area, every single relationship in your life. Let's look at the next image. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says this. It says, an athlete is not crowned or is not given a medal. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, does anybody know who this is a picture of? Anybody? Okay, so her name is Rosie Ruiz, and she won, so to speak, the Boston Marathon in 1980, except she didn't actually run the marathon. That what they think happened, looking at photographs and reports and so forth, is she started out the marathon, she got on the subway, she rode to the end of the marathon, she came out of the subway, and then she ran the last mile stumbles across the finish line exhausted and appears to have won this. You know, they take pictures, they figure this out. About less than a week later, they strip her of her medal, and then the second-place person gets the first-place medal. She didn't compete according to the rules. You know, in our society, we see that all the time with athletes, you know, dr- uh, performance-enhancing drugs and things like that, people getting around the rules. What we want to learn from this, from the athlete, is imitate the obedience of an athlete. You know, it's interesting. There's kind of a connection between the soldier and the athlete and the commanding officer because the commanding officer, who your commanding officer is and the voice that you're listening to, that is going to determine the playbook that you use, right? If your commanding officer is people, you know, you're going to get a book. I came across this book this week. It's called How to Make People Like You in 30 Seconds. That's going to be the book that you listen to, right? If your goal is to be successful in life, then your playbook is probably going to be Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If your goal is money, you're going to go get a book called something like The Intelligent Investor or Investors, Investments for Dummies or whatever it is. That's going to be your playbook. As followers of Christ... This is our playbook. God's Word is our playbook. It tells us how to live life. You know, one of the things that we're doing as a part of this series, if you weren't here last week, is we gave everybody a, a devotional. You can grab one on your way out if you want. But to go through First and Second Timothy on your own, don't just hear from me on a Sunday morning, but learn on your own and see what God has for you individually. Learn God's playbook about how to live life so you can like the athlete, play according to the rules. You know, before we go on and talk about the farmer, I want to talk to parents just for a second. If you are a parent, a huge responsibility that you have is entrusting your faith or faith to your kids. And you know, when it comes to kids, we can't fake faith. Like, we, you know, when it comes to people at church, we can make people believe that we're maybe a little farther along than we are, a little different than we are. People at work, we can kind of fake them out. You know, different people in your small group or people you serve with. But our kids, we can't fake out our kids. Like, they see us all the time. And they know what's really going on. You know, when we are yelling at our kids, 
you know, like, do this, clean your room, stop picking on your sister, eat your vegetables, you know, and we're yelling at our kids, rah, 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 and then the phone rings, hello, hey, oh, I'm having a great day, how are you, yeah, you know, we do that, you know, our kids see that. Now, I'm not saying we should, you know, they're yelling at our kids, hello, what do you want, I'm yelling at my kids, you know, we don't want to do that either, but our kids see the consistency or the lack of consistency in our lives, and so we need to pay attention to this. Are they seeing us say, follow the rules, but we don't follow the rules? Are they seeing us say, love God, but we don't love God like that? They're saying, love people, but we're not loving people well. Are you a good example for your kids? The final image is a farmer, verse 6. It says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. About four or five years ago, there was a commercial in the Olymp- in the um, in the uh, the Olympics, what they call it, the Super Bowl, um, that was so memorable. And I want us to watch or listen to a part of this commercial from Paul Harvey. Let's play this. And on the eighth day, God looked down on His planned paradise and said, "I need a caretaker." So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire, feed sacks, and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. I love that picture of a farmer, that a farmer is hard working. And that's what we want to imitate with a farmer, is imitate the hard work of a farmer. You know, one of the, the themes throughout chapter 2 is this idea of enduring or of suffering. And a farmer has to endure. A farmer has to have a picture of what's going on in the future to do what he does now. And it's hard work. And, you know, the thing about a farmer is different than, I think, a lot of jobs, is the farmer does the hard work, but there's no guarantee of what happens in the harvest season. You know, a farmer will plant seeds, and then if it doesn't rain enough and there's a drought, they're not gonna, he's not going to be able to harvest them. Or if there's too much rain, then it ruins his harvest. Or if bugs come and, they're, and, the, and they destroy the crops, then it ruins his harvest. He has to wor- put in that work, but he doesn't know what the end will bring. It's hard work. And the same is true for those of you, for those of us, as we invest in other people. There's no guarantee of the results that we want. You know, I'm going to pour my life into my kids so that they grow up spiritually and do well, but there's no guarantee that that's going to pay off in the end. You know, if you're a small group leader, you're going to invest in the people in your small group. You're going to prepare. You're going to pray for them. You're going to encourage them. You're going to challenge them, but there's no guarantee that there'll be a change with them. You know, we do this in these different ways, but there's no guarantee. That's why it's part of why it's hard work. 
I want you to underline a phrase in verse 6. It says, the farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Underline that phrase, first share. Because as we talk about the first share, it's the farmer, when we imitate the farmer, the farmer gets the, the first part of the crop, the best thing out of the crop. You know, I give a sermon here about three times a month, four to five Sundays, something like that. Do you know who learns the most from every sermon that I give? Me. I do. Because I put in this time, and I learn, and I grow from it, and then I deliver to you. But I get the first fruits of my sermons. If you lead a group of preschoolers, you learn more than they do because you put in the time learning the lesson and then telling them. If you lead a small group of boys or girls or middle school kids or elementary kids, you will grow and learn more than they will. That's what he's talking about. The farmer gets the first share of the crop. And the other way you get the first share of the crop when you invest your life in other people is you get to see firsthand a front row seat to what God is doing in that person's life when we invest our lives in others, when we level up in that way. I love how Paul wraps up this section of verse 7. He says this, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So let's do that for a minute. Think over what I say. Let's think over what Paul is saying. Who is it that God is calling you to invest your life in? Who are the faithful people that God wants you to invest your life in, to put the time in? I want to come back to this diagram for a minute. So I asked you to draw it twice. So what I want you to do on this one that's open on your page is in the second circle down, I want you to put your name, okay? So I'm going to put my name here. You write your name. Don't write Matt in that circle unless your name's Matt, okay? And then I want you to think about who are some of the people that have invested in your life, that have helped you to get to the point where you are right now spiritually, okay? I'm going to put, there's a woman in college who was very helpful for me. Her name is Kim. There's, I could have a lot of people in here, but she's just been on my mind recently. She was my university leader in college, and she saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. She encouraged me in the gifts that she saw and just encouraged me to step up and to lead and to grow. And so I'm very thankful for her. So she invested in me. And I encourage you, whoever's in that top circle, maybe reach out to them this week and say, hey, thanks for investing in me here. And then this next circle, I want you to think about who are the people that you want to invest your life in? Who do you want to give yourself away for? If you have kids Definitely want to put your kids in that circle. That's what God has said. God said you're in charge of raising your kids and investing them spiritually. But I encourage you, don't just put your own kids' names in there. Put some people in this circle that you want to invest in, that you want to make a difference in, that you want to pray for and help them and challenge them to grow spiritually. For me, Stacy and I just started a Ridge Group about two weeks ago, so I would put the names of the people from our Ridge Group in there as we're getting to know them. I'm hoping to have a spiritual impact on them, and they're probably hoping to have a spiritual impact on the other people in our group as well. And then in the bottom circle, you just put a question mark or a couple of question marks because we don't know that. Timothy didn't know that either. Paul said, in trust to reliable or trustworthy men, faithful men who will then be able to teach others. He didn't know that fourth generation either. 
But what we want to do is we invest in people and that they might invest in people after them. And I think about this as I look at the people in this room. Imagine what would happen if we all did this. If we all put the names of two or three or four or one person in that circle and said, I'm going to give my life away for this person. I'm going to invest in this person for the sake of the gospel. I don't know everything about Christ. I don't know everything about following Jesus. I don't know everything about anything. But I'm going to share what I do know. I'm going to share and encourage and challenge and comfort in the ways that I see. And I tell you, if all of us did that in this room, it would change our church. It would change our community. It would change our state. If we thought, instead of what can I get, how can I give to somebody else? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you that Paul invested his life in Timothy, who invested his life in other men, who invested their lives in others even beyond that. And here we are, 1953 years later, and that is still going on. God, would you show us who you want us to invest in and teach us how you want us to do that? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.